Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Crossroads this morning. Thanks for being here instead of at a lake somewhere. I'm going to pretend that you got invited to several. You just chose to be here. Okay? Ignorance is bliss, and I'm okay with that. We are in the fourth week of a look at the life of Daniel, culture and character. And just to catch you guys up, we left last week as kind of a bit of a cliffhanger. But this started because in the flow-mo that we live, our year kind of resets around when school resets. And we start falling back into rhythms, and parents rejoice because kids have somewhere to go during the day, even though you really love your kids and no one admits you want them to go somewhere, but you do. I'll say it for you, all those good things, right? And so we reset, and as we reset, we find our families in our communities finding new rhythms. And so we started this series because I think as we talk again about what our lives are going to look like, what our families are going to do, it's important to recognize that we believe in a faith. We serve a God that asks us to step out into our culture and not shy away from it. And so the question is, the tension is, how do we live out the character of God in a culture that increasingly is more hostile about the ways of God? And in the first week, we looked at Daniel 1, and we talked about the fact that your identity, that your ability to live into God's character is an extension of your identity in Jesus. So if you want to be more Christ-like, understand that he gives you purpose. If you want to be more Christ-like, instead of trying to be more honest, maybe the ideal there is to understand whose you are and where you come from. And as we understand more clearly our identity, then we start to more clearly live out the the character of God that we want to show the world. And and last week, we started this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I want to say thank you, first of all. Last week, I had mentioned that uh, I had never seen something called the Veggie Tales. And uh, I think 30 or 40 people left our church because I'm a heretic. And... I want to say thank you to the people that sent me the videos of the VeggieTales this week. I'm a, I'm a better pastor for it. You'll probably notice a depth in my teaching that has been missing for a decade, okay? Um, but no, so we, we started with this series on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and what we did was, because it's a really popular story, one of the top three, four in the Old Testament. It plays well in kids' church, so we tell it from an early age. One of the things that we did was look at it and say, if you put this in context of what's happening Throughout the scope of the Bible, the first 15 verses are about the centrality of worship in the character of God. So you have this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, and he marches everybody in the known world that had power to the middle of a plane and said, let's worship the statue that I built, that I built, that I built 10 or so times. He said that I built. He wanted people to worship his accomplishments. He parades him out there and he says, here's what we're going to do. The trumpets are going to blow. I'm going to throw a heck of a party and you're going to worship me. And what these three boys, probably 20 years old, what these three boys did was stand up for God in the middle of a culture that asked them to worship other things. And we kind of looked at how worship then, in, in terms of how it relates to our character, it reveals two things. It reveals our priorities and it establishes our authorities. And so we talked about if you want to live out a Christ-like character in a culture, whatever culture you're in, you have to know who you're worshiping and why you're worshiping him because it's going to set who you're becoming. And here's the deal. It was, it was a fun story last week. It's about three men that stood up against an army of people and a powerful king, and that one always sells. What happens next is difficult. 
what happens next is, and I mean, VeggieTales told me the end, they get thrown into the fire that they were threatened with. I guess my question this week is, it's really easy to worship a God who will deliver us. What happens? Do we believe that God is worthy of worship when we find ourselves in the middle of the fire? This week was a heavy pastoral week for me. I know you're going to be shocked to hear that I do other things than just teach on Sunday mornings. I was at a birthday party for a kid a couple weeks ago, and there a little four-year-old walked up to me and said, what are you doing here? Shouldn't you be at church? It was Saturday, right? Uh, <laughs> like, I only exist in this little space right here. It was adorable, but I do other things. And um, depending on the week and what we have going on, you know, we're not a huge, huge church. And so we have pastoral responsibilities that I have the joy to do but are still hard. This week was a heavy pastoral week for me. We have a family in this church that I've known for a long, long time, and, and they lost their father. I had to do the funeral. I don't do many funerals, but come alongside a family in the middle of pain and grief. Another friends of mine that go to this church, um, Dustin and Melissa Goodlaw, if you know them, she had headaches last week, and she went in on Friday, and they said, you have a massive brain tumor. She's our at my age, and she has three young kids. My question is simply, it seems more difficult to worship a God who lets us go into the fire. Is he still worthy? How do, how do we do it? What does, that, what does that look like? What does that say about the character of God? What does it say about my worship itself? It's easy sometimes when the world's pitted against us and we feel like heroes, but what happens when we feel like God should, could, would deliver us and he doesn't? And we get thrown in anyway. That's today. So I'm going to, before we get into the text, I'm going I'm to pray for us a bit. We have two goals on Crossroads. At Crossroads, every Sunday we say it. One is we want to know God. And we know God more by opening up his word because he painted the picture of himself in here. He says, this is who I am. Get to know me. And you know me by reading this book, these books that have been put together. And as we read and know more about the character of God, what happens is we see an increased influence of God in our world and in our lives. That's what it means to know God. You can't have one without the other and say, I know God well. And so we want to not only know about his character, but feel his influence, experience the influence of God in our world. So that's our goal today. What that means as we sit here is that you got work to do along with me because we believe God is active and the spirit of God shapes our souls as we open his scripture. And so we're going to spend just a few minutes at the front of this thing. And I'm going to ask that you pray for yourself. You spend some time and you simply ask that we're not just passengers on this flight, but we ask the Holy Spirit to do something in our souls today that we leave this place wanting to proclaim the culture and the character of Jesus more and more. And then two, I'm going to ask that you pray for me, that I do a good job this morning at telling a pretty difficult story and asking some tough questions. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for holiday weekends and spaces to rest and relax and family and friends and all the things. Um, I pray as we open your text today that, Holy Spirit, you, you teach us. If we've heard the story a hundred times, or maybe this is the first time, Holy Spirit, I pray that you shape our souls so that we might be more excited about the character of Jesus today. I'd ask you to take a couple seconds, and if you're comfortable, just say a, a silent prayer. and ask the Holy Spirit to do some work in and through you today. I ask you to pray for me, that as I speak this morning, I might do a good job of painting the picture of the character of God that we see in Scripture, that my words might be encouraging and edifying and joyful, and they might lead us to want to know more about this God who is good.
pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're in it together. Daniel chapter 3, if you have a Bible, if you don't, we're going to throw stuff on the screen for you. So let me pick up from where we left off last week. In verse 15, you kind of see this climax between these three 20-year-olds and the most powerful man in the world. When he said, if you don't bow down, you missed the first chance, I'll give you a second chance. If you don't bow down, in verse 15, I will throw you into the fire. And who is it that God, what God can rescue you from my power? The implication is, nobody, I'm the most powerful thing you know and have known. So his point there, as he lines up these three, and you have a nation bowing down, he's saying, I'm giving you another choice. Serve me or serve a God that I don't think can rescue you, because where is he? I don't see him, do you? And right next to him, just to paint the picture, when we talk about fire, it wasn't just, like we said last week, a campfire. This isn't, I made some s'mores and some embers are still going, right? Literally, there is this 90-foot statue of gold, inlaid of gold, and that was the kiln they used to, met the, the, to melt the gold. It was an old-school milk bottle kind of shape that had an opening and then narrowed and then had a big opening. And they did that so that they could push air through there to get it exceedingly hot. Most um, scholars say that the, the temperature inside of this furnace got up to somewhere in the range of 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. My point is simply, you had these three young men standing there, and it wasn't just like they saw the fire over there. I'm pretty sure they felt its heat. <laughs> and so Nebuchadnezzar said, you can choose, but I don't see a God that can save you. And what I want to do... I spend a lot of time on 16, 17, and 18. I want to spend a lot of time on those verses because we're going to see the response of these kids. And I think in the response of these kids, what we're going to see are three fallacies that, that, that we have sometimes, if we're dropped in the middle of a painful situation, three questions that we ask about the character of God. And they don't do it, but I think it brings up kind of how we respond when we think that God will or could or should save us, but he doesn't. And so... In verse, read with me, look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, when he asked, what God can save you from my power, we don't need to give you a reply concerning this. And just as a side note, that kind of sets the stage. I think there's twofold purposes of their statement. One, they're saying, we don't need to because we do not answer to you. And they're saying that in the middle of a group of people that everyone does. They're saying, we don't answer to you. So one, we don't have to give you an answer if we don't want to. And two, I think they're saying, that was a dumb question. You know who we are. You plucked us from our people group. We didn't listen to you in chapter one. If you just go back, Nebuchadnezzar, and read two chapters ago, right? We didn't listen to you then. Spoiler alert, we're not going to. Next chapter, the chapter after that, you, you know where we came from because you kidnapped us. You know the God that we serve because we've told you about him. You literally have seen his power in the previous two stories we looked at. You know we're not going to serve. That was a dumb question, right? And so he says to them, they say to him that we do not have to give you a reply concerning this verse 17. If our God, whom we are serving exists, he's able to rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire. And he will rescue us, O king, from your power as well. Here's the deal. I think this is kind of where we see our first fallacy come. And it's, it's, it's probably the most common of all of them. We're put in a situation where we feel like the God we worship is mighty and majestic and powerful and we need him to save us if and when he doesn't remove us from the danger, I think the first thing we do is question God's ability. 
if you go through something that isn't what you thought, whether it be somebody that dies or cancer or a brain tumor, three small kids, not knowing what tomorrow brings, I think the first thing you have to ask is the first thing I still ask is why did God allow this? Is he not bigger than the thing that's happening to me? We question the ability of God to save. And what I want to do, I'm not necessarily trying to convince your heart that God is still good. That's the ultimate goal. But what I want to show you is just because we don't see God's ability doesn't mean he doesn't have it, right? And so in these situations, sometimes the first thing we do is question the ability of God to save us. But at the same time, we know and see examples of power not displayed that's available even though we don't see it. I was reading this article yesterday. I like to read depressing things. I don't know why. I'm working my way through it, okay? I was reading this article on this woman who, who got swept up in a flash flood, essentially. She was driving. She was a delivery woman, and she drove over what she thought was a small puddle, but it was way, way, way more than that, and it was her transcript to the 911 operator, and, and she was talking through, like, hey, I just thought it was some water. I didn't realize this was a big deal, and she says, I can't swim, and she's talking on the phone to this woman, and this woman says, how did, did you not see the water? She was not good at her job. She said, did you just not, not see the water there? Did it just come out of nowhere? And, and here's the deal. Sometimes I think when we question the ability of God, it's because we have become too familiar with the stories of God to recognize the character of God. I think that we have all the answers and we see God as some domesticated cat instead of the lion roaring that he is. I think water's a good example because we think water is great. We go to splash pads and pools and you don't realize that water is more powerful than you. We become too familiar with the power of God. And so when it doesn't exist, when and how and where we think it does, should and would, we question the very power of God, his ability in the first place. And then two, I think not only do we get in these situations and we question the ability of God because we're too familiar with it, I think what makes us question his ability is that we just have forgotten what his character is altogether. So it's, we're too infamiliar with it that we forget who we're talking about. I have a buddy of mine I grew up with, and we played all the sports, man, especially basketball. And we had a rule growing up that every time we played somebody lesser than us, we were not, go we were not going to let them win because that's not loving. Essentially, that's a lie, right? And so we made a pact. I remember this when we were like in high school that whenever we have kids, we would never let them beat us in sports because the day they finally did when I'm 97 in a wheelchair, the day they finally will, they'd have earned it, you know? I remember he then went off to be a missionary in Germany because he's full of compassion. And he um, was living with this other family. They had two small boys. And in Germany, big sport is, is soccer. And so I show up there to visit. This is probably seven years ago. And he said, hey, do you want to go play soccer with me? And these two, you know, five, seven-year-old boys, I said, yeah, let's go play. And I thought our deal was still intact. I thought we were going to wreck shop over these seven-year-old boys. Like, this is going to be awesome. Let's go. I've been a little depressed lately. This is going to be perfect. You know, America. So we start playing these kids in soccer, and my buddy is letting them win. You know, doing the whole pretend like, oh, that's so good. And I'm like, Tyler, what are you doing? And I remember he looked at me and said, we're going to let them win. I said, no, we're not. <laughs> um, I was in seminary. I said, no, we're not. <laughs> And uh, he said, we are, man. <laughs> and we let them win, and I learned a life lesson, and he was more mature in that situation. That's another story, another sermon. You know, you can write me about that. Send me some new VeggieTales, everybody. But I remember afterwards, these two kids, man, they were beaming, and they thought, and they told all their friends that they beat the Americans, <laughs> you know? And what bothered me there, which still probably rubs me the wrong way, is they're probably 18 now or something like that and thinking we were better than the Americans at soccer. They had no idea that if we wanted to, we could have crushed them in their hopes and dreams and futures. But we didn't because my friend is good, right? 
My point there is simply, they didn't have any idea, they'd totally forgotten <laughs> that we were bigger, faster, stronger. When we question the ability of God, it's oftentimes because we're too familiar or not familiar enough with his power. And so these people come to this situation, these three young men, and they say, hey, here's the deal. I know in the middle of this situation that doesn't look too good for us, I know and I trust and I believe in the ability of my God. And oftentimes we're in the middle of places that test our fortitude, our resolve, our trust in God. The first thing that goes is our belief if we get thrown in the furnace that God's ability exists. And what this says is it doesn't because just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And what that does is call into question perspective. And that's exactly where they go next. Look at verse 17. We just read it. If God exists, it's a rhetorical statement, which he does. He will save us from your power. Verse 18, my favorite phrase in this story. But if he does not save us, but if he does not save us, let it be known to you, O king, that we don't serve your gods. So what you see is at first they question God's ability, and secondly, what they do is the fallacy that we often run into is if God is able and he doesn't deliver, then clearly he doesn't care. It's kind of what's called a theodicy in some respects. How can a good God that's powerful enough to save us from pain not? The only solution I have is that he doesn't care for us. And these three young men in the middle of this plain, in the middle of Babylon, threatened with their lives. So here's the deal. We know and do not doubt God's ability. And if he doesn't, we're not going to doubt the fact that he cares for us. And what that statement does when it says, if God chooses not to, what that statement does is show a level of maturity that I don't think I'm ever going to get to in my life. Because maturity is simply understanding that the world does not revolve around you all the time. It's the ability to see outside of your perspective and then implement that wisdom into your life. And what these boys say is we understand that the story that God is writing is bigger than our lives. And just because he doesn't show up where and when we want him to doesn't mean that he's not still good. Those two things can exist at the same time. About four years ago, there was a woman named Brittany Menard, and she, I remember it because this story just kind of changed my mind about end-of-life stuff. And let me explain. She wrote an article, not a Christian woman, and she was 28, 29, and she was terminally um, diagnosed with terminal cancer. And she had a couple kids, and she's from the Northeast, and she wrote this article that got picked up. I forget where I read it, but it, it got kind of, it started a conversation nationally. And where she lived in the Northeast, they allowed um, medically-assisted suicide. So she wrote this article on why it was good and why she's going to choose to do it. And a lot of people said, yes, this is what medically assisted suicide is for. Um, and I'm not coming out on, on that issue right now. I'm simply saying that, that she chose to save her, her, her family and her kids and her finances the pain of death. There's another woman who was 38 who had four kids who was diagnosed terminally with stage four breast cancer from Colorado Springs. Her name was uh, Kara Tippetts, and, and she wrote a response to this article that went viral. And she said, I'm going to choose the opposite. Let me tell you why. I'm going to quote this. This is really good. In her response to this one woman, she said, suffering is not the absence of goodness. It's not the absence of beauty. But perhaps it can be the place where true beauty can be known. In choosing your own death, you're robbing those you love, and you're robbing those that love you with the such tenderness and opportunity of meeting you in your last moments and extending you love in your last breaths. What she had was a beautiful perspective that maybe the grace of God exists if you live or if you die, that maybe the fact that God cares isn't necessarily judged if he saves you from this one thing, but there's a bigger picture 
that he's saying, that he's writing, that he's doing. Paul said it in another way. In Philippians 1, he writes a letter to his friends, his co-laborers, and they gospel the most joy-filled epistle. At the beginning of this letter, he writes, and he says to them, he's talking about his imprisonment and how it, probably he can see the end of the road for him because Rome doesn't like him very much because Jesus wasn't celebrated in the world at this point. And he says in verse 20, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain. He says, for me, if I keep living, God is gracious because I keep proclaiming that Jesus is good. If God takes me out of the world and I die, it's gain because I get to be with him. Either way, it's a grace. Sometimes we don't see death as a grace. Sometimes we don't see a lack of deliverance as a grace. And what I'm saying here, what these men clearly understand, what I struggle to get oftentimes is that the grace of God isn't limited to my life. The grace of God isn't limited to this side of eternity because the story of redemption he's writing goes well beyond me and mine. Tim Keller had a quote on prayer. He said, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. (laughs) So what we can't say what we can't say is that because we don't see God's power, he's not able. And because we, God doesn't act, he doesn't care. Because that story exists well beyond us and our lives. Then it goes on in the text. It says in verse 18, If he does not, let it be known to you, we won't serve your gods, and we won't pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. Let me tell you about the third fallacy that I think we come into, that I step into, that I think about when I get into situations where I'm begging the God that I worship, that I'm begging the God that I believe is, is majestic, that I'm begging the God that I believe that is more powerful than my situations to save me, and he doesn't, is the third thing I think and I hear and I read and I don't like is when we say things like, well, we're in it because God caused it. He's got a purpose in your pain. Now, let me tell you the difference here. I believe God does bring out purpose in your pain, but I don't think God caused your pain so that he might be able to bring out a purpose that's not a loving or good God. So we throw verses up there like Romans 8, that he works all things out for the good of those who love him. But here's what we have to recognize, and it says it in our verse, that Nebuchadnezzar created the statue. He created the fire, and he's the one that threw him in. God didn't do that. God didn't cause the brokenness in our world. We did. So oftentimes we let God be culpable for our responsibility. (laughs) Let me break it down like this. I have a small child. She's one. And yesterday, let me just tell you what happened yesterday in my life. So she has two naps a day, this many, right? And, and right now we're in the middle of maybe we go to one nap a day, but she needs to nap during the day. It's better for society at large, okay? And yesterday she uh, didn't go down for a morning nap. Cried a lot, cried a lot, cried a lot. So we said, oh, it's not going to happen. That's okay. We're going to have a solid, like pro-level afternoon nap, Yeah. That didn't happen either, by the way. So she, she had not slept more than an hour all day long. And for a one-year-old, that's a long time to go. And what happens when my daughter doesn't sleep like that is we go through the Everests and the Mariana Trenches of emotions. It's the highest point and the lowest point in the world, right? We go through these peaks and valleys that I don't understand but exist. And so I, I was feeding her. And um, I think there was a slight delay between the blueberry dispensary that is my job now as a parent. And, I mean, she... She lost it, right? We just went from life is good to I don't know why you hate me. I don't know why you're doing this to me. And so I did what I do. I bent down, got on her level because I'm a teacher. I got down here and I said, hey, kiddo. I said, here's the deal. I know you're sad right now, but this is not my fault. You chose not to sleep, all right? And I said that to her and she cried some more. I'm going to keep saying that to her, right? Not my fault that you're feeling all the emotions because you're tired. That's on you. Uh, Fast forward a couple hours. It's a family thing. I have a twin brother. He has got a kid that is, oh, about 16 months old or so, about seven weeks older than mine. 
And uh, my twin is kind of a lot like me in a lot of ways. The difference between our kids, though, is his kid now walks and runs. My kid still does the crawling thing. Let me tell you something. Nothing scarier than a toddler running, all right? Because it looks like you're just a half a second away from disaster at all times. This little drunken-looking toddler's doing laps around the kitchen, all right? It is terrifying, and so he really likes going outside, and he doesn't understand at my parents' house where we were, because family's in town this weekend for us, there's a laundry room door that leads to the outside door. And so this kid understands outside, and he gets excited, and he starts running for the laundry room door. The difference is he's new at this walking thing and doesn't understand the time it takes to stop all of that, you know, jelly belliness from moving. And so a couple times yesterday, he actually went and he, he would just kind of try and stop and then run into the door and bounce back. <laughs> and we would kind of laugh at him. One time, he runs through the door and he actually like tripped a bit about a foot before the door with his little feet and he face planted like into the door, right? You're laughing. I see that. He face planted into the door. <laughs> and actually, my brother and I laughed, but he starts <laughs> crying. And my brother, who is a lot like me, picked him and said, oh my gosh, buddy, it looks like it hurts so much. And that is 100% your fault, (laughs) right? My tribe is a compassionate tribe of the Ridenauer clan. My point is simply, you know, this kid is crying and he looks at you like, why did you do this? And you look back and say, I I didn't. I I, I picked you up because I'm gracious. I didn't do this in the first place. Sometimes when we're in the middle of painful situations, we look around and we blame God for the brokenness we brought into the world. It's hard. We don't attribute responsibility where responsibilities do, and we attribute culpability where it's not due to, and we think that God is to blame for the pain in the world, and that God's to blame for them ending up in the fire. And there's a difference between God allowing the actions of people to see their rightful conclusions and, and doing it, providing it, causing it in the first place. So I, I'm just here to say if we're in bad situations, if we have people sick, if we are experiencing death, if we have pain in our life, I, here's what I know about God. And so it says that God did not cost the brokenness in the world. And when we weep, God weeps. And if we get angry about sin and brokenness, which we should, so does he, more so. Because it's his world that we broke. So here's what I know about God. I know that God's able if we don't see it. I know that God cares if it doesn't feel like it. I know that God didn't cause it. And I know that in the middle of our brokenness and our pain, in the middle of our anger, he says, I'm mad too. I care too. We have a God that cares deeply about the pain that we go through in our world. But sometimes we think that it's his fault that we're there in the first place. And we have to attribute right blame where it's rightly due. Because Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw him in the fire. Here's what I know is that God wasn't happy about it. God's not up there smiling saying, this is going to be good for him. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's not the God that we serve. That's not what a good father does and or says. Good parents don't want to see their kids go through pain. And if you think you're that way with your kids, imagine how God is with all of us and all his creation. And so it comes to the question then that I can't answer. And I'm not going to try this morning. And that is, why does God choose to act sometimes and not choose to act others? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I do know that if he doesn't act, it's not unfair. I don't know. Uh, N.T. Wright is a theologian that I follow that I like a lot. And he, he talks about when we look at the miraculous in the Bible, perspective helps. So oftentimes, because there's choice in this world, because there's love in this world, and God wants us to love him and to have true love, you have to have true choice. Otherwise, it's not true love. And so he's going to say that because choice exists, the consequences of our choices exist. And sometimes God steps into the natural order and breaks those consequences. And sometimes, a lot of times, he doesn't. He's going to say, if you read the scriptures, 
So we think that with every page that turns, there's a flood of new miracles that God's always breaking in. I think he is a good bit, but also you turn the page in the Old Testament, like 400 years went by, you know? You know, you read the story of the Exodus and you think about what God did um, when he brought the people out of Egypt. You know, this is what God does. There was 400 years that went by of people praying and asking God every day to step in. One generation after the next. And, and he did, finally, but, but he didn't when some people wanted him to. And so as we approach the scriptures and ask the questions, when and where and how does God step in to save in the middle of the fire, the God that we worship, is he still worthy of that worship? I think we have to be reminded that when God steps in, it's his grace and he chooses to sometimes and doesn't, doesn't others. There's not an equation I can give you that'll make him step in more, you know? It's not if you pray at 7 a.m., 7.15 a.m. and 8.22 p.m., you have a 70% more likely chance of him curing something. That's not how this works. But I know that in the middle of it all, it's not a reflection of his power, or his, power or his care, or, his, or the cause of it. And these kids knew that. It blew me away. They said, hey, I believe in God's ability even if I can't see it right now. I, I know that he's good and that ultimately he will bring good even if he doesn't do it where or how or when I expect him. Even if we die, his story's not done being written because I know that he's not the cause of it in the first place. You are the king that says you're good. And then... The story keeps going. Look at verse 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, after these kids stood up to him, not a lot of people stood up to this guy. He was filled with rage. Literally, the text there means that his face changed. He was so angry. And his um, disposition changed towards the three men. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter than it was normally heated. He ordered strong soldiers and his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing fire. Verse 21. So these men were tied up and they were still wearing all their clothes. Verse 22. But since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so excessively hot, the men who escorted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were killed by the leaping flames. But those three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the furnace of blazing fire while still being secured. So here's the deal. That whole, that whole section there is kind of an adverbial clause on what's going on. We get back into the story a bit. And the point that Daniel's trying to make as he writes it is that there is no way outside of divine interaction these people could be saved. When it says seven times hotter... The Bible is not an algebra book, and it's not asking you to do math, okay? What it means there is literally, it's a, it's a phrase that meant seven times to the hottest you can possibly make it. So he's just saying, make it hotter than you've ever make it, make it the hottest you can possibly make it. And then to show us that it was really, really hot, Daniel includes the descriptor that the people that threw them in died, because it was that hot. What he's saying is that I don't care if these people lived in the Sahara, they haven't built up a heat tolerance enough to actually withstand this fire. He's saying if there is deliverance, there's only one source for that deliverance. And then God does what God does. And this is somewhat of the tension in our text is sometimes we want to believe in a God that saves us from the fire instead of saves us in the middle of the fire. That's a hard tension. That's another sermon, but I think there's so much that we grow and learn from because God allows us to step through the flames and does deliver us from it in the first place. <laughs> and so it says they were tossed in the fire. Look with me at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was startled and quickly got up. He said to his ministers, wasn't it three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? And they said to the king, for sure, O king. He answered, but I see four men untied and walking around in the middle of the fire. No harm has come to them, and the appearance of the fourth is like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire, and he called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out 
come here. So kind of extraordinary thing happens. Um, there's a word, a theological term called a Christophany, which some people have attributed to this text. All that means, it's, it's an appearance of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. It's the, the human form of God, the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. There's a couple of these different ones, but really when we talk about what happens when he looks to the fire and he sees four men instead of three, some commentators, some theologians, some scholars are going to say it's a clear Christophany. They're going to say that this is God, Jesus in the Old Testament. If other scholars say, I think it's more of an angel, they say it could be Michael or Gabriel. If you're Jewish and you read this text and you believe the story of Daniel, you think it was the angel Gabriel. If you're a Babylonian and you read this, all you knew when it said that it's like a son of, of, of God was the word literally means son of deity, that something not human was in there with them. No matter where you were at on the spectrum of belief, everybody came down with this one common understanding that's what's in the fire with them is not human, it's deity. And what I think is really important is that we understand the way in which God works in our world. The how really matters in the story. Because if we paint the picture of a God who saves you from challenges and saves you from oppression and cures all the things that could harm you and doesn't allow you to face the weight of the consequences of your brokenness or the worlds around you, when you get into those situations, you have no other recourse but to believe that God's not good enough, big enough, strong enough. But if you believe in a God that meets us in the middle of the fire, it changes our expectations of what deliverance looks like. And here's the deal. That's what God's done all along, is stepped towards us in the middle. From Genesis 1, when he walked with Adam, to the Old Testament, when he said, my presence is going to dwell with you, to Jesus coming and stepping into our mess to fix it, to the Holy Spirit that literally means the one that, lums, that comes alongside of us. The God of the Bible is a God who steps into the brokenness and pain and weathers through the flames, doesn't allow us to miss the flames altogether. He didn't have to, but did. That's the God that we serve. And so how we talk about the redemption of Jesus matters. It, it, it paints a picture of a God who steps into the flames with us first and foremost. And that changes how we deal with the question of if we don't see God deliver us, is he worthy of worship? Tim Keller says this phrase, and I liked it. He said, if you remember with grateful amazement that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, you can begin to sense him in your smaller furnaces with you. <laughs> I love the ambiguity of this text. So we can sit here and go around and round and round, and I can try to prove to you that it was an angel or prove to you that it was a Christophany. I just think we missed the forest through the trees there. I think it's kept ambiguous, and Daniel's keeping it ambiguous for two reasons. One, he doesn't know. And two, I think it's a beautiful reminder that the presence of God in the middle of the furnaces we find ourselves in takes different forms. It takes different forms. Sometimes it's people around us, sometimes it's a book we read, sometimes it's a sermon, not mine, but other people's, right? We find in the middle of the furnaces sometimes the nearness of God that he promises looks different for different people at different spaces and places. And it's a beautiful grace that I need, that I need to remember. There's this, a TV show in the mid-90s that I liked a lot. I don't know why I liked it. It's probably one of those things that I should be embarrassed about, but I'm not easily embarrassed. It was called um, Touched by an Angel. You guys watch that bad boy? You know, Roma Downing and a black woman that was awesome that I loved that sang the song. And I thought, man, this is what heaven looks like. A really cool accent and a large African-American woman, you know? Like, this is the heaven I'm going to. I'm, I can't wait. And, and what happened every episode was they would, like, be thrown in the middle of a crisis with some normal people. 
and then three quarters of the way in or towards the end, like somebody would shine a 20 watt light bulb on these people and then all of a sudden be like, you're an angel, you know? Um, and it was really funny to me. A couple things are funny about it. One, the fact that it was a pretty underwhelming, like, coming out party for the angels there. You know, like, you could, you're an angel. Can you be a little more, I need, I need you to dial up the resplendentness of your, uh, you know, arrival. And then two, there's a beautiful picture because every episode the person was different and every episode how they told people were different. It reminded us that sometimes we don't see God in the middle of the fire, but if we look long, hard enough, we're reminded that he's in it with us. It's the motif of the God. It is the theme of the God that we serve and follow. It's what's always happened throughout all the scriptures is a God who walks, meets us in the middle of the hard times because he's doing something. And then it ends by saying, hey, come out of here. Verse 27, once all these people, the satraps, prefects, governors, ministers, once they gathered around, they saw that these men were physically unharmed by the fire. The hair of their heads was not singed, nor were their trousers damaged. Not even the smell of fire was to be found on them. <laughs> I was at a campfire three months ago and it still smelled like smoke, everybody. I mean, this is, this is miraculous. And I think why Daniel puts this in here is this part, this part, if you question the ability of God to deliver, this part shows you the extent of God's deliverance in our lives and in our world. So it said they got out of the fire, they didn't even smell like it. It's one of my favorite little adverbial phrases or adjectival phrases that describe the ability of God to deliver in the Bible. So one of my favorites outside of this one is when they leave, we talked about the Exodus, when they leave Egypt, you have three to five million Jews and the Pharaoh is at his wit's end because he can't compete with the power of God. So he says, just get out of here, take anything you want and go, right? So they go and they march, they march, they march and they get to the sea and they get to the sea, and Pharaoh has a change of heart. And so the most powerful army in the known world at that point saddles up the chariots, which they invented, and they ride towards the Jews and say, we're going to kill them all and take them back. And at that point, the Jews are freaking out, and they say, I, I can't believe God would bring us here because you're thinking, just swim. I'm telling you, they've been slaves in a desert for 400 years. I don't think they knew how to do that. <laughs> so they're backed up against the water, death on one side, death on the other, and God parts the sea. But here's the beautiful part. God didn't just part the sea and they trudged through the mud to the other side. It says in the text that when he parted the sea, they walked on dry ground to the other side. It says in our text here that when they got out of the fire, they didn't even have a hint of smoke on them. And what that does is it shows me, it reminds me that when God saves, he doesn't do it halfway. It reminds me that when God forgives, he's not frugal about it. Because sometimes it's difficult for me to believe I'm fully forgiven, that God will fully redeem, rescue, rescue, and restore. I need to be reminded that my God doesn't jump in the shallow end of the rescue pool. He's always in the deep end, you know? <laughs> this is character and nature. And, and, and what this shows is just a small depiction of the fact that God, not only when he rescues, rescues fully, but it's a picture of the future rescue of God one day. It's a picture of the future rescue of God because, again, the perspective of God is bigger than our perspective. So whether he saves us from the flames in this life or whether he's going to bring it back and restore us one day after or when we pass on to the other side, God promises to redeem and restore in the middle of the broken world that we find ourselves in. That's why Paul says things in Romans 8 like, For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. What he's saying is even though you don't see the majesty of God now, wait, it's coming. And the hardness and the heat of today won't matter when compared to the goodness of God's glory tomorrow. It's a reminder of what will come. 
and what I love about this and why I think this is really profound is two things I think happen. He means two things when he says that he delivers or redeems fully. <laughs> One is when he says that you won't even understand what's going to come. I think sometimes we think we're going to get to heaven and we'll have some kind of like holy amnesia and we'll just forget the bad parts of our life, you know? I don't think that's true, actually. I think when God redeems, it means that he doesn't just allow us to forget the pain points. He redeems our pain points, right? Because he's bigger than them. So I I don't fully know how to explain it outside of the fact that God promises that the things that cause us to weep in this world will ultimately be a source of joy in the next life. And so as a very kind of subpar example, let me venture out with this one. One time in high school, I was broken up with, okay? I was 17, and I thought it was the end of me. I had never been hurt that badly. I had never had somebody get to know me and then say, I don't want you to hang around me anymore in that way. And I like this person. Um, I drove around Flower Mound for hours just listening to the same song in my Volvo. Like that was a depressing time of life, everybody. And here's the deal. That was a pain-filled moment. One of the ones I remember in high school that was full of pain. But let me tell you something. I am so glad now that I'm happily married that that moment happened. Does that make sense? I'm so glad I was broken up with because if I play that out, I'm not where I am now. So what has happened over time, now that I'm in this next stage, happily married with my wife, I am so happy that that moment of pain is now redefined as a moment of joy because I understand fully what's happened today. I think that one day when we get to heaven, God fully redeems and restored. Even the moments of pain will lend itself to greater depth of joy. And there will be signposts and signals for his joy instead of reminders of our pain. It's a beautiful description. Two, I think what's going to happen when we talk about redemption and joy, I think the weight of time factors in. David said in Psalm, you've turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. What I think happens is you've got to understand it's a perspectival argument that pain today seems like it's the end of all days, but it's not. And over time, the pain of the present lessens with the joy of the future. There's a church planner in England. His name is Galvin Reed. He tells a story I read about this week, and he said, I met a young man who had fallen down a flight of stairs as a baby, and he shattered his back. He'd been in and out of hospitals his whole life, and yet he made the astounding comment that he thinks God is fair. Reed asked him, how old are you? The boy said, 17. Reed said, how many years have you spent in hospitals? The boy said, 13 years. The pastor then asked with astonishment, and you think that's fair? <laughs> the boy replied, well, God has all eternity to make it up to me. <laughs> it's the simple idea that the weight of time is something we need to factor in, and you don't see perspective when you're in pain. First Corinthians says it like this, soak into your soul, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Time doesn't erase the pain, but it does bring perspective. <laughs> And so I think God's saying is my ability to deliver either now or if not now in the future will erase the pain of the present. And then when God does deliver, look at the end of our uh, chapter. This is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar actually looks at the three and exclaims, praise be the God, verse 28, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his fourth angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him, ignoring the edict of the king and giving up their bodies rather than serve or pay homage to any other god but theirs. I make a decree that any people, nation, or language, or group that blasphemes the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be dismembered, and his home will be reduced to rubble, for there exists no other god who can deliver in this way. Then Nebuchadnezzar promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I love where this ends. 
This chapter started with hopefully a theme of worship to Nebuchadnezzar, and it ended with a theme of worship, but to a God who's more worthy of it. So in Romans 8, when it says, like we talked about, that God works all things out for the good of those who love him, what he literally means there is what we see here, that he is in ultimate control, and he can take a circumstance or a situation that's ultimately evil. Nothing good is going to come of this day, and because he's bigger than our pain, he can make something good out of something that doesn't have any good. That's what it means when it says that. That's the God that I trust in to deliver me. And in the end, when he calls all people to worship, we're reminded that really this whole chapter is about our belief, our trust in the sovereignty of God. That idea that nothing can stop God from doing what he wants to do and when he wants to do it. And it's hard to remember the sovereignty of God when we feel like everything's out of control, when we feel like life is chaotic, when we feel like we're in the middle of the flames. But the idea that we trust in a God who's bigger than, who's better than, it allows us to keep worshiping even when we don't see deliverance or redemption like we think we should. It reminds us that he's worthy of it. So I told you about Dustin and Melissa. I sat with them in the hospital on man, Tuesday or Wednesday this week and during the surgery, um, tough week. Again, I chatted with him a couple times and he's got three small daughters and this happened quickly. And um, on Thursday, he sent me an email and I just kind of want to read it to you guys because it's kind of about our church. He said about three weeks ago, my wife started having reoccurring headaches so don't rush to the doctor if you have headaches. Just read till the end. She went to the doctor finally because she was dizzy and things just didn't seem right. Well, one thing led to another and the doctors recommended that we have some imaging done to check some possibilities off the list. When we finally got an answer, it wasn't what we wanted. My wife, as perfect as she is, had a brain tumor. My entire world came screeching to a halt. What about my kids? What about my job? What about soccer and dance practice and money? And most importantly, what about my wife? That's when I was really low. I mean, really, really low. If something happens to her, these three girls are going to have to be put up for adoption. He's kidding. But seriously, would you know what to do? I didn't, so I prayed. Everyone prayed. Sleep will never find you in the wee hours of the night when you're worrying about all the horrible possibilities. Matthew tells us that all your worries can add, can't add a single moment to your life. Tomorrow will bring new worries. Today's troubles will be enough for today. For too long, I've let the what-ifs rule my thoughts. I want you all to know from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for being the community that cares. Thank you for being the church family that means what they say. And mostly, thank you for the outpouring of love you've shown to me and my family in the most critical time of need. When I was diminished to just a carbon-based life form with tears, this was my first hard test of my faith. In moments like this, I always think of Job. Poor Job. How did he endure? What a man. What and how could he have done everything he was supposed to do and still have it taken away? When you're behind the eight ball and all the chips are on the table, how you respond in the face of adversity says a lot about your character. I'll be the first to tell you my wife is tough as nails. She was the one with everything to lose and I was a wreck. She had all the faith and I was filled with doubt. She was the person who believed in the Lord and I was the one asking God why. I'm happy to inform you that Melissa is doing well after the surgery. The tumor was removed and it was benign. We're truly blessed. I'll never again feel sorry for myself for not having the things others do. I'll be forever grateful for the life that my God has given me. And in the months to follow, please don't feel pity for us. We have it all. We have you. Thank you, Crossroads family. I think it's a beautiful picture that answers the question for me. In the middle of the fire, where is God who says he's worthy of worship? He's with us. And he's called us to be with those people too because his story of redemption is not done being told yet. 
It's something I can know and trust in because he's sovereign and he's in control. And it leads me to do exactly what this chapter we're sought out to do, worship. Let me pray and let's worship. God, I'm incredibly thankful. (laughs) When you step in and redeem and restore, I'm thankful when you deliver through the darkness. I'm working on being thankful when, when you choose not to. I pray as we deal with hard spots in life, fires and furnaces, that you give us the confidence in your character, in your ability, in your care, in your perspective to trust you when we don't see it. Because we know that you're writing a bigger story. I pray that you give us the ability to carry that faith of your character into a culture that needs to see it, can't see past themselves. And as we see and hear stories of you overcoming and delivering, may we worship as a people who are loved by a God that is more majestic than we are and that can deliver. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.